Hello and welcome back to the JMSU mini-series of LJMU's 1823 podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing alcohol abuse and the path to going sober. Before we begin, this is a trigger warning that we will be discussing alcoholism, drugs, mental health, self-harm and suicide in this episode. My name's Lois and I'm joined by LJMU student Mel, who's here to share their story about going sober three years ago. So welcome, Mel. Thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. Um, just tell us a bit more about yourself and why you've come on here today. Um, well, I'm currently studying criminology um, at LJMU and I'm hoping that I can share my story of being sober, the difficulties of being sober as a student and inspire other people who are going through a similar experience to change their life. So to start off with, what was it that made you start to drink at such a young age? Um, I think roughly around 14, 15, um, it began as a bit more of a kind of rebellious act. Um, I got in with the wrong crowd, the alternative scene, and I realised that I was starting to experiment with numbing certain emotions um a lot with my sexuality I wasn't openly out so alcohol became a kind of factor to help me to mask my sexuality so did you find that drinking helped you with you know with covering up them like feelings and emotions and stuff or did it actually end up making you feel a lot worse Initially, um, I didn't recognise it as being anything other than a very normal activity that a lot of people were um, involved in. It was very normal for house parties and kind of the more you drank and the more house parties you had, the cooler you were, the more popularity kind of came with it. Um, As time kind of progressed, I realised it wasn't doing many favours. I was putting myself in more uncomfortable and vulnerable positions than I probably should have. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you saying about, you know, starting with a young age, going to house parties and stuff like that. I think mm-hmm. even for everyone of a young age, there is such like a sort of peer pressure almost with drinking that, you know, you go to house parties and you sort of feel forced to have to drink just like you say for like popularity because, you know, especially at such a young age, you don't want to stand out from other people from, you know, and not drinking will do that in that sort of thing, which is a horribly toxic thing, especially at the age of like 14. It's a very kind of toxic um, culture, unfortunately, that it's so normalised to be... um, Involved in alcohol, involved in smoking, um, even hypersexualized. So when I moved from Liverpool to Yorkshire and already had a different accent and didn't really fit in, I didn't want to do anything to stand out. So you join the popular gang, you appear pressured, you um, make choices that are not necessarily the the best ones and and so the problem began. <laughs> Do you think that moving away from Liverpool, you know, as young and, you know, moving away from your home and that's where you've grown up, did you think that also had quite a heavy impact on turning to drinking and stuff like that? Um, definitely, to be honest. Um, 
moving away from my home city, away from everything that I ever knew and standing out like a sore thumb. I moved away from friends, from normality, security, mm-hmm. a place where I thought I belonged to kind of being placed in the middle of nowhere like a fish out of water. Mm. And so any remote attempt to follow the crowd and not feel like the odd one out, I'd do it. Yeah. With, say, drinking, this sort of drinking culture that mm-hmm. even begins at, you know, at teenage and in high school and stuff like that, it follows into uni as you know, a lot, we all know who were at uni. Do you think, what's your opinion on that sort of stigmatised drinking culture that, you know, has followed from a young age into university as well? Um, we celebrate everything with drink. Celebrate the fact we've got into university, freshers, when you're trying to make friends. You're trying to make friends whilst drunk. Everything is centred around alcohol, around nightclubs, around people that you barely know, that you're going out with in a vulnerable position. Anything could happen. For people that don't drink, the amount of opportunity that's available is difficult. When you disclose that you don't drink, that's then more of a issue, perceived issue, than if you are drunk. It's almost celebrated, let's do shots, people cheer. You got drunk, oh, go on. And it's, you get him a pat on the back. You then say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, I don't drink. And you get a stigma, why? You've got a problem, I can't socialise with you. You're going to be a boring character because you can't enjoy a party. But why do you need to be in a compromised position to enjoy a party? You're not living in the moment when you're intoxicated. I'd much rather know what's going on, have the memories than the horrendous regret. Yeah, the anxiety and regret. It's real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think as well, you know, you saying all of that as well, it, it is like a competition. Almost. Oh, definitely. Even within friends and, you know, it could be like your closest friends, but, you know, you still feel like you have to drink around them it's it's almost it's a bit concerning that it almost becomes a bit of a confidence thing mm-hmm. as well that you know you drink to get the confidence I can certainly say that for me before it became a coping mechanism when it was life and soul of the party it was a reputation I could drink a lot I could down a bottle fast Mel will do shots Mel will join in with this Mel's not afraid to make her absolute fool of themselves so it becomes a celebrated thing to be a drunken idiot. <laughs> and there is a lot of competition with friends of, like, I can drink you under the table. But yeah. unfortunately, in my case and in a lot of cases, that leads to some very compromised positions. Thankfully, man's my own doing, but there's a lot of safety risks. And there's a lot of situations where people leave themselves where they don't know where they are or who they're with. And I don't think that should be celebrated. Mm. And I think once you've, as well, once you've kind of got that sort of, I suppose, reputation in a way Mm -hmm. of being like the the quote-unquote best drinker there and stuff like that, it's kind of you're in a competition with yourself in a way, aren't you, To, Mm -hmm. to live up to that expectation and sort of exceed it. 
in a way. Yeah, it, it became a point where very easily I could spend 60 to £80 pound on myself on a night out. And, you know, it was a competition of the strongest drink that I could drink, the fastest I could drink it. I can, I, I've got this. And mixing drinks and a competition of, well, this time I've drank this much and but then I know I'm going out with this person, they can drink more. And I've, if people had already started drinking when I got there, I felt like I had to up my game to be on the same level. And yeah, there's that unjust pressure. Yeah. Did you did you find that financially were you sort of impacted as well with, with drinking as well? Um, I think I didn't notice it when I was younger because house parties, you're not, you're not bothered what you're drinking. You're young, you're stupid if you can get your hands on it then you do it. As I got older, um, oh yeah, definitely. I I wouldn't buy very much in the way of groceries. I wouldn't really um, particularly eat overly healthily and take care of my body. Um, even when it came to, to smoking, it was under the counter cigarettes because at least I got them, but I don't know what's in them. <laughs> I don't know where the, the hell they're coming from, but I can afford to go on a night out. And as I said, you know, sixty to eighty pound on myself, and that's not including buying other people drinks. That's not even including getting food on the end of a night out. That's just purely mixing all kinds of concoctions, shots, beers, whatever you handed me, I'd, I'd down. And this is your sort of second time at university, yeah, because. You were at um, you were at Leicester yeah. at first. Was that sort of the being at uni the first time? Was that kind of the the turning point of your like relationship with alcohol? Did did that sort was that the moment when you were like something needs to change here? Um, first year, I really kind of went very hard with the social aspect of drinking. Um, you know, I went on a night out and I was told in the morning, oh, you've kissed five people. I can't remember that. You've thrown up and been put in a taxi. And I'd wake up like, why have my jumper wet? I have no idea what I've done. I've blacked out on campus and thrown up multiple times, but I never saw an issue with it because everyone else got on party. Everyone else got a hangover. It, it was the norm. I'm a student. I'm, I was 20 years old. So it very much didn't seem like it was an, a problem. It wasn't until my mental health declined and going out on a Friday became going out Friday, Saturday, going out Friday, Saturday and Wednesday gay night. I had a bad lecture, I'd buy a can. I had an argument, I'd buy a can. I'd go to my barbers, I'd have a bottle of beer and it very much started to creep into a, a routine. <laughs> It wasn't an enjoyment factor the other night out. It was, uh, this is part of my routine, like waking up in the morning and brushing my teeth. I am expected to be out. People know I'm going to be out. People know I'm going to drink heavy. That's what I do. That's what I do best, milk and drink. Um, but the moment that I knew I had to stop wasn't even when I was buying it on a daily. It was when my mental health declined to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore and I started harming beyond smoking, beyond 
smoking weed, doing balloons, being stupid. It's when I got to a point of self-harming and one particularly bad night where I tried to take my life and that involved me drinking a full bottle of whiskey and cutting my arm up and trying to jump in the canal before my friend found me. And I made a promise to myself on that day, you can't drink anymore. You've just tried to take your own life and there's a reason you've been pulled back. There's a reason you're sat in that room today and someone has saved you and I haven't drunk since. And what, what was the first thing that you did after you made that pact to yourself? What was like the first step that you took to ensure that you know you kept that promise for yourself? At first it was it was difficult. Um I went back home, I moved back in with my mum and I started treatment with the intensive home-based treatment team, which for that essentially is like hospital level care, um, but you remain in your own home. So I had mental health workers coming out daily, speaking to me, um, taking medication and just really trying to trust in opening up and telling them how dark my thoughts were getting and cooperating with them. And at first it was resistance. It was not an easy path. Um, I didn't trust him easily. But as time went on, um, I started to, to get there. And I think for me, non-alcoholic beer tricked my brain in the first couple of months to thinking I'm still having a drink, even though I, there's no alcohol content to it. It's the physical action of opening a drink without... The results with it. Now I can go out and have a, a pint of Coca Cola and be fine. But that definitely heavily relied on for maybe the first six months non alcoholic beers. That was a real kind of turning point. Did you find that, you know, did you sort of go straight to non alcoholic drinks to sort of hide the fact that you were going sober? Was that sort of like a you know, obviously, as we're saying with the stigma of drinking and stuff like that, did you find that it was a bit easier to tell people that you weren't drinking if you were just still sat there with a by eye? It looked like an alcoholic drink. Um, initially, yeah. Now I couldn't care less. But when it was the first couple of months, even year of my sobriety, at a glance, you've still got a glass bottle. So it really did help to have non-alcoholic options or even mocktails. People can't by I tell that there's no alcohol content um, and I was not as confident and open with saying I'm sober because um, you're admitting you've got a problem and that can unfortunately make you feel more vulnerable than actually having the problem. <laughs> and now you've been three years sober mm -hmm. well just over three years yeah what have you found in sort of over these entire like three and a bit years what mm -hmm. what has you know not drinking and doing anything in that sort of like means what has that done to your mental health like in a positive way um I feel I've got a lot more clarity um I can process things quicker I feel like with emotions I'm not hiding from them I buried a lot deep down and any emotion that I didn't want to feel, alcohol would suppress it. But then it just creeped back up in the morning. I'm actually actively dealing with how I feel, speaking about my emotions very openly, 
um, looking after my body. And I think I'm taking opportunities that are positive for me, like I've returned to education. Um, I think it's improved my mental health to a drastic degree. I'm living in the moment now. I don't feel like I need that false confidence. My confidence comes from finding who I am without the inebriation. Finding what really makes me unique and knowing that my personality is enough to carry me. I don't need to be drunk. Since you started uni, you know, your first degree being in 2016, have mm-hmm. you noticed any sort of change in more of our uni, um, but in sort of events that are run by the uni, you know, that aren't alcohol orientated anymore, um, you know, over the past few years? Um, I think when I first started university, it was very much Freshers wristband, nights out, nightclubs, um, there was nothing. Thankfully, there has been a progression um, and definitely moving in the right direction. Maybe not the same level um, of events for people that are sober, but there's definitely a lot more than prior existed. Um, I know I've taken part in, there's been bowling, trips to a comedy club, um, there's ghetto golf, there's been a few different events that I've taken part in that have been catered for and sober. So we are moving in the right direction, definitely. And just running on the back of what Mel just said, the Student Union do offer a lot of events that are not orientated around alcohol or drinking or anything like that in any way. Um, But also every event that we run that may involve alcohol, you know, going out bowling, like to pins and stuff like that, where there will be bars and alcohol involved, never feel like you will have to drink that it's all it's never pressured to drink it's just there as an option and any drinks vouchers that we give out or anything like that please never ever feel pressured to have to get alcohol just because it's there um there's no judgment at all and it is just an option as i say and never feel like you can't come just because it involves a bar this is 1823 podcast I can imagine like coming back to a new uni, mm-hmm. especially. But I know it's your like it's your home, Liverpool's your home. But yeah. you know, going back to a new uni and you've you know you're you're your own person now. You're not relying on things anymore. Were you a bit scared in a way that things were going to come back, even though you were obviously you were a lot more sure of yourself? But was there sort of like that sort of anxiety about it as well? I think there's always that fear when things go wrong. It's so easy for you to want to lean on an emotional crutch. That, for the longest time, was mine. And there's been moments where I thought I could just pick a can up right now. It's still a fight. It's a fight when it's social. um, Because I think, but if I did drink, I'd be invited out more. It's a fight when you have a bad day. Or a series of bad days. Because it would be so, so, so easy to pick up a cam and numb it all and not feel. It's a it's constant battle. But then I have to remind myself that there are bigger reasons why you don't. There are so many more positives as to why you don't. Like, 
even down to physical. Like, my liver had focal fatty sparring. It's regenerated. I think of the bigger picture, and it's hard to pause sometimes, but I have to think, like, look how far you've come. And I have a visual on my phone when I feel like I could turn. I'll look at that photo and think that is not just, you don't just look bad. Think of how you felt. The fact that you've had a second chance at life. Not everyone gets it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important, like with everything that you were just saying then, that, you know, this progress isn't like a linear thing. You know, there's always going to be ups and downs with no matter what you're sort of healing from. I think that's like a really important thing to point out because, you know, some some people may go into it and if they fall at at an early way in and, Mm -hmm. you know, relapse and stuff, then, you know, a lot of people might feel like, oh, well, I've you know, there's no hope for me. But I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to sort of push that you're not going to recover from something like in a straight line, like one day you'll be fine. Well, one day you'll be bad and then the next day you'll be absolutely fine. It just doesn't work like that. It'd be ideal if recovery was linear. Um, Unfortunately, it's not. But progress doesn't have to look like a straight line. You know, there can be days where progress is minimal and days where progress is at a much higher rate. And thankfully, I've not relapsed with substances with alcohol or drugs. But there's been moments I've wanted to turn um, and I have had self-harm relapse across the board. Um, It's normal. It's not something that should be beat up. This is a a real problem. If we have something wrong with our body, we go to doctors, we admit it. When something's wrong with our mind, we try and hide it. And that shouldn't be the case to preserve your mental health and speak about it, there's no shame. And there's help out there. But the more you bury it, the more it's going to surface. Definitely. And the harder it becomes to break that down. And through, you know, these past three years of sobriety and this, like, path to helping yourself, what changes have you made in your life for the better through that? Um... Engaging with mental health teams and admitting when I'm starting to fall has been a real benefit to me. Acknowledging and allowing the emotion to come in rather than burying it and speaking openly, um, realising that there's no shame in mental health Um, and expressing my emotions in a creative way. I've always been a very creative person, but drawing the darkest times I put pen to paper and a series of poems have now become a, a book that I'm I'm publishing. And what with this book, um can you like tell us a bit more about like the details of it and what you what you hope will come from publishing it for other people? Mm-hmm. Um so I've I've called it the darkness within and it's a series of poems that I've written kind of from the perspective of feeling emotional abuse in a relationship, from feeling um, like you've got no hope and all the emotions that have come with feeling those dark times. And I'm hoping that people who read it feel less alone. 
realised that they're not the only person. Because you can feel very isolated when you've got mental health, when you've got addiction. It can be so easy to become consumed and feel like you are the problem. And like the problem owns you and there's nobody else in the world that understands. And hopefully through reading, not just from a textbook of these are a set of symptoms or you know how to know you've got a problem but real deep emotional this is how I felt at my core someone reads that and thinks yeah that's exactly how I feel somebody gets me yeah I think it's so important to with with you know your writing and talking about it on here and stuff like that is the main thing is is for other people to know that they're not alone in it as well because mm-hmm. like you said mental health problems is as much as you know every people are trying to destigmatize it the purpose of this podcast is to destigmatize that sort of stuff that but there is sort of still that like isolating feeling because you're in your own head yeah it feels like no one else is going to understand it and maybe you know people might not understand your specific how you mental health problems and how you feel but everyone well not everyone but a lot of people feel it in their own way and it's I think it's really important that for people to know that you know everyone there is always someone out there who's going to understand you mm-hmm. to the same extent in some way and it, you should talk about it rather than you know keep it to yourself because you know sometimes you can't help yourself completely and sometimes we can brush off um how we feel it's it's just anxiety we we all have bad days, this kind of narrative. And mental health is not taken as, as seriously. We don't prioritise self-care. It becomes an afterthought. I'll treat myself by looking after myself. That should be top of your list. Mm. Mental health is so precious and not enough people realise that until... There's a decline. We don't do enough to maintain it. And I think, you know, saying about the decline as well is that that's kind of only when people start to talk about mental health as well, is that if Mm -hmm. someone is facing like a decline of their mental health, that's only when, you know, help and support is sort of kick-started and that massively needs to change. Because, you know, as much as you need help when you are struggling with your mental health, you need help when you're not to prevent something from happening as well i think mental health services have their place and i know for a fact i wouldn't be alive if it weren't for them but they do focus on when the problem has already begun and i do think that there should be a preservation of well-being before you get to that point i mean I kind of view it as you. your head is, you have to be in there 24-7. It needs to be a happy place to live. You can't escape yourself. That, that's your home. <laughs> and if that is full of dark clouds and you're not talking about it and there's nothing to preserve any remote element of happiness it can become dark very quickly. As you say, it's important to carry on speaking 
about it and mm-hmm. hopefully you know rates will improve as more understanding happens of mental health problems and stuff like that because that is what needs to be done really to you know for the first sort of change to be made and i think that's why i'm such a an open book some people may perceive it as, as oversharing um but i wear my heart on my sleeve and i speak very openly about what i've been through in the hope that you never know who's listening who thinks actually i can open up to you because if i can be a safe place to even one person that's the whole reason i'm sat here talking about my sobriety mm-hmm and that sort of links to my final question for you what I was going to say what advice would you give to others listening that are going through something similar a thousand percent mental health team um and there are other things that are like Instagram has sober girl society it has a lot of different sober speakers on there um over, I think what's it called is it over the influence um, they're another sober speaker. There are so many resources out there if you take the time to look. It just is that first step. And then that can sometimes feel like the hardest one. But then once you've done that first step, you're not alone. The first step, you can feel like you're so alone. It is the biggest challenge you will ever do. But then when you find the right organisations, the right people who understand how you feel, you're not walking the journey alone, you're walking the journey propped up. And if you stumble, you've got someone to fall back on. Thank you for listening to the third episode of the JMSU mini-series. And thank you once again to Mel for joining us on this episode. If you are going through a similar situation and would like support, please reach out. You shouldn't have to suffer in silence. If anything spoken about in this episode has affected you, the LJMU Student Advice and Wellbeing Team provides drop-in services every weekday from Monday to Friday from 10am to 4pm. You can also book an appointment with the team on on the LJMU website or send an email to wellbeing at ljmu.ac.uk and all of this information will be available in the show notes as well for you.